welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. It's an all-NBA playoffs edition. It's the two biggest stories that have emerged from over the weekend in the NBA playoffs. First, we're going to talk to Derek Bodner about the Philadelphia 76ers crashing out so spectacularly in a four-game sweep against the Boston Celtics. We're going to wait to talk about the Celtics in Toronto until later, uh, maybe even early next week, if only because the Toronto Celtics series seems to be uh, the one that everyone is looking forward to right now. And in the second part of this episode, I have already recorded with Tim Cato. We are going to talk about Luka Doncic and the 2-2 Los Angeles Clippers Dallas Mavericks series after Luka's absolutely spectacular shot to end the game against the Clippers on Sunday. But first, Derek Bodner. Man, how you doing? Just listening to you talk about that, I'm so jealous of people who get to talk about Luka Doncic. And I had to talk about Alec Burks and Josh Richardson, or Jason if you listen to the ABC broadcast, and Tobias Harris. And I am, I am jealous. But other than that, I am doing well. Well, you know who the, what the funniest thing is, is that Tim now gets to talk about Trey Burke. And Trey Burke dropped 25 points on the Clippers yesterday, the same day that the Sixers were eliminated after having, oh boy, released Trey Burke in February. And he's the exact guy that they need, by the way. Sort of. My sort of stance on that, he is the archetype of a guy that they need. Uh, My sort of stance on that is if you're relying on Trey Burke, um, as your primary perimeter initiator, you're probably not beating the Boston Celtics. Yeah, and part of how Trey Burke is succeeding right now is not being the primary initiator. He's literally right. just getting open shots from Luka. It's fair, but it remains pretty funny that we're at this stage where uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, when was the last time this front office made like an undeniable winning move? Like, when was the last time they made a move that's just like, this was 100% the right call? Yeah. Um, so they've, they've had a couple of good draft hits. Landry Shamit. if you ignore what they did eight months later, Landry Shamit was a good pick. Yeah. Matisse Thibel, if you ignore the fact that they telegraphed their interest and had to waste a draft pick, was an undeniably good pick. But so those are... I will push are, back on that, by Shake, the way. Shake Milton. Shake Milton. Shake, I think, is one. I think Landry and Shake, like, they they nailed the 2018 draft, like, 100%, I think. I think that that's but probably the one. Speaking to your larger point, those are singles and doubles. Right. Not, not even really double. Those are singles. You need, you need, you need to, when you take those big swings, you need to not strike out nearly as much. I will even push back on the Matisse pick a little bit, if only because, yes, Matisse is a very good defender. I have not seen anything resembling like coherent offense from him yet. No, there's not. Yeah. That's for sure. Like there's a, a wing real can't chance. Dribble, shoot. Yeah. And finish is tough. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a real chance he's Andre Robertson and like, that's fine at number 22. That's a guy yeah. that's a rotation player in the playoffs. Right. But they, 
one of their big adjustments was bringing him into the starting lineup in the series. And it's just like, he's oh, right. very woefully miscast in that capacity right now. Maybe he gets there. Maybe the shot gets there. Uh, he is known to be a great kid and known to be a hard worker. So maybe the shot does get there, but I am skeptical based off of what I've seen of Matisse so far on offense. Very woefully miscast could be the title of the Sixers 2019-20 yearbook. Um, I will not hold it against him that they needed him to be more than he was ready for. Uh, for sure. I look at it purely in the, he was a 20th pick in draft. He exceeded that value. So that was a, a good selection. Like I said, the fact that they needed him to guard Jason Tatum and be a viable starting offensive player um, in year one of his NBA career when everyone knew he couldn't dribble, shoot, pass, or finish. That's not really his fault. So the Matisse Thibel trade, though, because we can't really consider him the 20th overall pick. We have to consider no, him. No, he was a 24th and a second, yeah. Yeah, we have to consider him 24th and whatever that, yeah, what, 24th 33, and 34th? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Which is more than 20th. It's like probably the 16th pick in the draft or so in terms of value. So that becomes tricky. And I don't mean to make this like shit on Matisse Thibel time because the Sixers have so many more issues than just Matisse Thibel and litigating Matisse Thibel would be missing the forest right. from the trees. But right. like it, it eludes me in regard to why the 76ers stood pat with this roster uh, before the trade deadline, because I was even someone who thought that their offseason was a success last year. I, I liked what they did. I was very clearly wrong, but I, I liked what they did. I liked the way that they went from, and it seems like Jimmy Butler was never really an option in regard to staying. Like, look, there can be all of these stories that get put out uh, in regard to whose fault it is. But, you know, the, the impression that I've gotten is that it was never really a realistic option uh for brett brown for ben simmons for quite a few different people in the organization does that stand up for you yes yeah no there was there was very little chance i don't think jimmy wanted to be, be back i don't think jimmy wanted to be back in the role he would have been in uh, yeah. i don't think there was clearly personality conflicts between a couple of people jimmy and brett jimmy and ben uh, i don't think really any party truly wanted and look i think there are some people who realize that jimmy would have helped them win this year but there were concerns it's not just like people want to make it about being Brett or about Ben. It's both of those. It's also worries about his aging and his contract and his sure. whether or not how his game's going to age and, and the minutes and the wear and tear. Like there were a lot of concerns. Uh, but no, I don't think I don't think either party party truly wanted would have been truly comfortable with that arrangement. I don't I don't think I think Jimmy wanted his own team in Miami. I think all that is mixed in there. So. From there, I liked the fact that they got Josh Richardson in a sign-and-trade. I liked the fact that they locked down Tobias Harris because that was an inevitability. It was a bad contract. We knew that at the time, but getting that deal done uh, seemed like a win for them. And then recovering and getting Al Horford seemed like a win to me. Even though I knew that the, the fit wasn't ideal, Getting someone who can be a backup center for a center who is often an injury risk in Joel Embiid and a guy who had potential to play with Joel Embiid on the court at the same time as a floor spacer, as a ball mover, as someone who could really kind of operate in a wide variety of roles. Again, that did not bear out. 
but I liked the idea of that. Where this went undeniably wrong, because at the time we could parse whether or not it was a good idea or not. I thought it was. There were people who didn't think it was a good idea. I can't remember what you thought. What did you think at the time? I thought they had a chance to be the best defense in the league, and I had no idea how they were going to score points. Um, so I think I tried to understand where they were going with it. Yeah. While also recognizing there's a, a real way. The, the Horford one, the Horford fit was the one I think I was most concerned over. And the Harris contract is the one I was most concerned over. Uh, I at no point towards the end thought Jimmy Butler was going to be back. So that really wasn't too big. I agree with you. Once once it became obvious Butler wasn't going to be back, I thought Richardson was a, a fair, pro- probably a best-case scenario pivot for yep. a guy who was going to leave anyway. Um, Tobias Harris, I didn't like the trade when they acquired him. Yep. The contract, I didn't like at the time. Uh, so I think, I think Harris and Horford, I was um, skeptical of. Uh, like I said, but I, I thought maybe they had a chance to be the, like legitimately the best defense in the league. And they weren't even close. Yep. And I think, I think the combination of the fit being worse than a lot of people expected, myself included. Like I thought Horford, I was worried about Horford not having that sort of pick and roll ball handler that he worked so well. in. because even when he was playing the four in Boston, he was, you know, top of the key pick and pop. He was yep. never a comfortable high volume corner shooter. So I think there was, I, I was concerned there. I was concerned over the lack of ball handling. I was concerned over letting JJ Redick walk, which I think is, is maybe the most overlooked aspect of that. Yep. But I looked at it and I talked myself in their defensive potential. And that potential never materialized, not even close. Uh, I think that is a part where I maybe blame the coaching staff the most, uh, but I also think there is some other aspects to that as well. But I mean, everything just wasn't up to, like, even if you look at it and I said, here are my concerns, here's what I think has a chance to work, everything came out less than we expected. The defense was worse. The offense, the offense, I think, was actually kind of where I expected it to be. But I was expecting, like, the number one defense and maybe the 12th through 15th offense, and they ended up with, like, the 8th defense and the 13th offense. And it just it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. Where I think the Sixers front office undeniably went wrong in this is not making changes before the deadline. It was... Painfully, painfully obvious. obvious. Yep. I'm so glad that you said the same exact words. <laughs> it was painfully obvious that this was not working. Let's even give them credit and say by January. It was so obvious that this was not going to work. And yet they still did nothing to change it. I don't know if it was concern over signing Al Horford just to turn around and trade him. Uh, that is not necessarily looked kindly upon by agents. Uh, the look of that does not look great. But would Al Horford have been pissed, like getting out of that situation? I don't know that he would have been. No, I don't. Like, no, I don't. I don't think Al Horford wants to spend the next three years of his career being Joel Embiid's backup. Right. Looking into potential moves to get off of the Tobias Harris contract, whenever Tobias. I mean, Tobias was pretty consistent throughout the like first part of the season before the bubble, right? Like he was a useful offensive piece, but seeing if you could get off of that deal always did strike me as like an interesting move. It'll be difficult to do that, but there was enough on the table 
to where I felt like they need to figure out a way to shake this entire thing up. Otherwise, this season is a lost season. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's, there's like, I remember, and this is something I wrote about at the time. And you might ask me what my opinion was back then. There was no margin of error, of error built into this defense. If they weren't suffocating and historic, yep. this team had almost no chance. Yep. There's just, there's, there's, it, you look at, one of the ones I always like to go back to is, is three-point shooting off the dribble. And I think the Sixers took like 400 or so odd attempts all season, which I think was the second fewest, or in the, I think the fewest in the league, and shot like 32% on them. Whereas you look at the Celtics, and they had like three times as many attempts and shot like 36%. And it's just offense with this team was so tough. Every trip down the floor. Yep. That, that, that defense had to be just absolutely smothering. And there's once you, you you got here and you saw, all right, it's 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 okay, but it's not it's not it's not completely dominant, and also the offensive fits. You know they bet on a lot of people when they acquired them, who sort of had career years right before they got. Like Tobias Harris had a career yep. year with the Clippers, never approached that throughout most of his career before then. It was they they bought at a high point and they assumed that that was going to carry over. Josh Richardson asked to run the offense in Miami. Role he's not suited for pretty much at all. They sort of bought into it. And I think they thought he was going to be more than he was. And Richardson had a down year. Like his, his catch and shoot three point shooting wasn't what it was. But you just looked up in the middle of the year and you're like, well, Alec Burks might be your best scorer. And you're relying on Furkan Korkmaz. And oh my God, what happened? And there, there was no margin for error whatsoever. And it is a, I mean, it's, it's a huge step. I mean, this is a team that, you know, Tobias Harris last year when the Sixers were making that run against Toronto, he was essentially their fifth option. You could live with his deficiencies back then because you had that two man game with Embiid and Redick that you could go to really the only thing approaching a bread and butter offensive play a Sixers have had in the time that Embiid's been the focal point. You had Jimmy Butler who you could give the ball to and clear out and he could get you a bucket. You had mismatches that you can exploit with Ben Simmons, and he can get you buckets in transition, and open three-point looks. There just there was there was there was there was nothing for them to fall back on. And we're gonna. I mean, Brett Brown is he's if he's not gone by the time you release this podcast, he'll be gone soon. Yeah, we're just recording this, assuming that he's fired. Yeah. There's. I don't think there is a coach on the planet who could have made this a championship-caliber offense. And I think a lot of the complaints about the Sixers this year will come from their offense and come from the fact that they couldn't get Embiid, you know, spacing around Embiid to work and all that stuff. And it's just, when you look at how this team was built, first of all, you just look at the complete disregard for dribble drive shot creation, which is as low as it is anywhere. Like we were talking about Trey Burke and Alec Burks and like, it's just, it's just crazy that we're, that for a team that had title aspirations, that's what we're relying upon. But also just, they don't fit the coach's style. They don't fit the needs of your two-star players. There's just a lot that went into miscalculations and in, in making this team fit offensively. And it is, um, it was tough to pl- watch play out. It really was. So, I guess the next place to go here is, and I will ask you, if, if you want to run through the missteps from the process to where we are now, or if you want me to run through them, because (laughs) (laughs) we can do either. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. you will certainly have uh, probably a more complete picture of it than I do. But I would love uh, for us to just run through and just be like, this is where everything went wrong. Because I think you and I are in agreement that Sam Hinkie played the system the way it should have been played and basically made the 76ers foolproof in terms of having potential contendership down the road. Because long story short, they were a contender last year with Jimmy Butler, with Ben Simmons, with Joel Embiid, with JJ Redick. This team was a legit contender to win a title last year. Didn't happen. They lost on a shot from Kawhi Leonard that rolled around the rim for seemingly 45 minutes and ended up falling. And they went on to win the title from there. If that shot doesn't fall, I have, a, I think that there's a real chance that the 76ers are the team that ends up winning the title, given the way that everything shook out. What... I think the Sixers did from there is just they gave themselves no margin for error, which I think is what you have kind of alluded to throughout this entire thing. They went from having the most margin for error in the entire NBA to having literally zero margin for error with anything that they did after deciding to cap out by trading for Al Horford and Tobias and uh, by signing Al Horford and trading for Tobias Harris, followed by signing him to that contract. Yeah. I mean, so I like, where does it start? I mean, it starts with Markel. Uh, that is, is it's a shame. I was really high on Markel in the draft. I know you were too. There were reasons to be high on Markel. I don't think what happened with Markel is as much of a scouting mistake as it was a background check mistake. But I'll be honest, they, I don't even you know, know if it's up, that. I, I don't. There's a it, there's a million things that go right. into this, and it was. It, I understand that that was a tough one to foresee coming. Not impossible. There were people around the league I talked to who had some, raised some concerns that I think bore out to be true. Yep. But it was one of the most unique situations I've ever seen. But they invested a lot. You know the way you you, you talk about sort of the different ways they can get different avenues to get from where they were to true title contention. They had that, that year they had essentially, you know, the number three pick in the draft because of a pick swap where they could have won 60 games that year and still had the number three pick in the draft. They then traded up to get, you traded up what at that time, I think most people expect to be another top 10 pick in the Lakers pick to get up to number one. So they essentially had the trade, the draft capital, to get the number one pick in the draft, even after having Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid. Was it the Lakers okay, or did, Sacramento? I can't remember. The, it was a pick. Sacramento pick, which was a pick swap that got them to three. And then the That's Lakers right. pick they added on top of that to get up to number one. That's so they had right. to draft capital to get a number one pick, even though they had two superstars under cost-controlled rookie deals. They had two max cap slots, which eventually turned into Al, essentially Al Horford and re-signing Tobias Harris. And then they had the draft capital, or the, the trade assets, to acquire Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris. You, of essentially what are four decisions there, you needed one to work out. Just one. You had four swings to get one of those right. 
and they all missed. And we're sitting here, you know, I tweeted this the other day, when Sam Hinkie left, you know, a month after, when they won the lottery a month after he left, Sixers had two mainstays, two core pieces, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and all those four different ways to get a third one. And, and really that third one needed to be somebody who could create off the dribble, score from the perimeter, while also fitting in to those two stars. Now you're sitting here four years later, Joel Embiid's older, which is a factor. You know, who, who, nobody likes to have, have this conversation, but we don't know how... You know, Joel Embiid's prime might not be as long as some other superstars. I hate to think about it, but he's a big guy with a lot of lower body injuries. It's, it's, a, it's a chance. Yeah. You have Joel Embiid who's four years older. Both Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are way more expensive. And you had the worst salary cap situation in the league with very little trade assets and a bunch of negative contracts. You essentially have two core pieces who are older, more expensive, and fewer ways to get from where you were to where you want to be. Um, you, you need one of those four to work out. It's just, it's, it's, it's to have basically swing 0 for 4 on real legitimate ways to add difference-making talent. You know, I think one of the most interesting things I always go back to, and then this colors sort of the way that we analyze sports and team building. If the Sixers went to Sacramento with the second pick in 2018 and said, we'll, we'll give you Ben Simmons for, Mar- Mar- or for Luka Doncic, could they have done that? And I'm not asking, I'm not putting you on the spot, but like there are, we, we look at it, well, they didn't have a chance to get a superstar. So Tobias Harris on a $180 million contract, eh, it's not too bad. When in, in reality, we have no clue what, op, what opportunities they had that they either didn't pursue or they turned down, was never leaked. There's a million different ways, things that could have happened where they could have a team that they, A, have that third high level player. And B, things fit better than Al Horford standing in the corner shooting 25% from three on a $109 million contract. Like, it's, 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 so I guess to answer your question in a long winded way, where did it go wrong? Well, the entire four years. Yeah. That's a crazy offer. Could they have traded Ben Simmons for Luka Doncic? Would would Atlanta take that for the third pick? I mean, I mean and look, I, I wasn't, I was I, I, I had thought about that privately in my own head. I didn't even tweet that out or write about it. But like th- my point there isn't even really with Luka Doncic, even though I, I loved him at the time and, and geez, he's been a million times better than I would have expected. But there are so many different paths that front offices have that they have to evaluate that we don't even know would have been available or would have been under consideration or even might've been talked about. There's just, I, I think we tend to get, look at it like, well, they didn't have that many opportunities. So, Tobias Harris isn't that bad. And truth is, we just don't know. Teams always have more opportunities available to them than what we think. And like I'm, I'm doing a project right now where I'm writing about the Timberwolves, right? And I'm writing like an offseason preview. And just the sheer number of limbs or branches that come from the decision tree of signing or not signing someone as, you know, league-wide inconsequential as Malik Beasley, right? Like, Malik Beasley is not a guy that, you know, is going to move the needle in, like, such a substantial way for an NBA title at the end of the day. Right. Cle- Cleveland right? Cleveland basketball writers are not writing think pieces about how the Cavs can get Malik Beasley. Yeah. Right. But the sheer number of different things that will become available to Minnesota if they do or do not sign Malik Beasley is insane. And the same goes for even tenfold 
whenever it comes to decisions like should we trade Ben Simmons? Should we trade uh, the number three pick and a Lakers protected pick for Markel Fultz? Right. And it is just so difficult to come up with any front office that I can think of in the past that has just flat out missed on all of its big decisions over the course of like a two year period, like just flat out whiffed on every single one, like Sacramento, at least they got Rashawn Holmes, right? Last summer. Right. Like that's not a big decision. That's like a single, maybe, you know, a single or even a double, if you want to call it that, because he might be a starting center, but like, at least they got that one. Right. And that's a front office that just fired their GM. Yeah. Like former sixer Rashawn Holmes. Yeah. Former sixer Rashawn Holmes. Right. Uh, The Hornets at least got taking PJ Washington at 12. Right. The Wizards got the Davis Bertans contract. Right. Or uh, trade. Right. Where they took him on for nothing from San Antonio. The Bulls who have been the standard for terrible front office decision-making. Kobe White looks pretty good right now. Like, he looks like a pretty good basketball player. They got Thaddeus Young wrong, it looks like. And having said that, the Zach Levine contract that many people, including myself, were somewhat incredulous about, that's a pretty good contract right now to have. That's two years, like 40 million left on it. That's not bad for someone like Zach Levine, who just averaged 26 a game this year on 45, 38, and 80 from the line. The Tomas Sadoransky deal even, like, is one that they've gotten right. Like, 10 points, 5 assists, 4 rebounds. uh, Occasionally knocks down a 3. Really great with ball movement. Like, for the Sixers to so categorically get every single decision wrong, it's honestly an impressive amount of ineptitude. Yeah, and look, I'm already going back to the Luka thing and, like, Sixers fans are going to think I'm trying to break up and beat him. So that's not what I'm doing at all. But it sort of like goes back to the 2017 draft where it's like, well, okay, but if you didn't take Mark, Tatum would have gone number one to Boston. You don't make the trade. Lonzo Ball probably wouldn't have fit. Josh Jackson, De'Aaron Fox would have been a tough fit. With Ben Simmons, like all that stuff. Yeah, sure. If you just look at it through a narrow lens of who was available in that draft, but there's so many different from trades you could have made with the Lakers pick, the trades you could have made with that number three pick. Like my, my point is that the great front offices find ways to use their assets to manufacture into production. A great example of that is a Spurs with Kawhi Leonard and trading for him and developing him. The Sixers had so many different avenues to get that third guy and they missed, they missed on a lot and they missed on a lot of really good opportunities. (laughs) They missed so frequently across the board. Uh, what is your favorite bad 76ers trade of the last, uh, let's say since Sam Hinkie departed. So over the last four years, I mean, the one, the one that frustrates me the most is Tobias, just because, you know, you knew the Clippers weren't going to bring him back. You yep. you knew they were looking to trade him. You knew he was going to be a, a move on the free agent market. 
Ainu is probably going to be overpaid. Uh, I think they overpaid in the trade. I think especially when you think about them overpaying for the right to then overpay again. Yep. And I think they overvalued what he brings to a basketball team. He's a nice fourth or fifth option that would have been drastically overpaid and will get in the way of you adding that number one perimeter score. Like I, a lot of people look at it and say, well, they weren't confident they were going to bring Jimmy Butler back. They didn't think that was going to be a long-term fit, a long-term marriage they were happy with. So they had to go out and replace him. That, to me, makes it even worse. Because if you're looking at Tobias Harris alongside Jimmy Butler, then Tobias Harris's skill set makes more sense. But if you're looking at Tobias Harris to replace Jimmy Butler, then he's just getting in the way. And I think that's probably the one that makes me the most. Because he's getting in the way because now you don't have the trade assets to trade. And he's getting in the way because now you don't have the financial flexibility to go out there in free agency and to add talent. To even Now you don't really have the flexibility to add the mid-level without your luxury tax bill. I think I saw... Bobby Marks of ESPN saying it's going to be the second highest luxury tax bill in the history of the league. Well, how's that going to impact future spending? And that goes back to Tobias Harris in some regards as well. So I, I think that Tobias Harris, I mean, I, th- I think the Markel Fultz was the most damaging. But like I said, there were so many mitigating factors to that that it's tough to really parse those away. I think the Tobias Harris one is the most frustrating for me. I think that my favorite one might be the Jeremy Grant one. Hmm. Because that essentially turned into Jeremy Grant in a second round pick for Andre Pesechnik. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, you had to. So his his drafting the draft the selection of Pesechniks might be the most. It, it's the one you can um, justify the least, maybe. Yeah. He there was never really a point where Pesechnik was good. No, he he was drafted specifically because he wouldn't play in the NBA. And they're like, yeah, you know, maybe he improves a lot over the next couple of years and then we can bring him over. It's like, but no, if it's not like he didn't want to play in the NBA. He wasn't coming over to the NBA because he wasn't good enough. And they just didn't want to roster a player with that. Uh. That's that's also part of why I don't dock them too much for losing that 33rd pick for, in the Matisse Thibel trade. They yeah. weren't keeping that pick anyway. They didn't want to roster another young player, another rookie. And, and uh, Well, I mean, just think about all the high second round picks they gave up. They gave I up know. two for Ish Smith. They gave up one for Trevor Booker, which the, underrated the, might be the funniest I think, one. I, I think that was that was ended up being the thirty-first pick in the draft too. Yeah. My favorite, there was a, a I mean, look right now. There's there's leaks everywhere, and there's reports running from everywhere. I read I read this week complaining that Trevor Tre Booker didn't work out because of the Sixers, because of Brett Brown's system. And it's like, what are we doing? The guy's playing in China right now. Like he the. Why did you ruin my day even more by bringing up Pesechniks and Trevor Booker? The They traded the 42nd pick last year for cash in the Jonathan Simmons deal, which was pretty hysterical. It'll, it'll help them pay for a Brett Brown's two remaining years on his contract. Uh, they so traded the 39th pick in 2018 for cash and a future second. second. Uh, that future second was the 42nd pick in 2019 that they traded for cash. They traded the 39th and 46th picks in 2017 for cash. Uh, they, they just gave Rashawn Holmes to Phoenix for cash. <laughs> yeah, and look, look at some of those players that went right after Pesechik, too. Kuzma, Derek White, Josh Hart. Like, yeah, I had Derek White very high that year, too. I liked, like, I liked him a lot. He was real good at Colorado. And, yeah. and by the way, really what they need right now, too. Correct, yeah. Um, that's one, two... 
three, four, five, six, uh, I believe seven, eight, nine, counting the ones that they traded to Los Angeles for uh, Tobias Harris. That's nine, like top half of the second round picks that they traded for like nothing. Yep. <laughs> for yeah, like literally it, it, nothing. People are like, well, they're second round picks. It's like, no, but the picks like 30 to 35, like those are, those, those have value. And what's frustrating is that the Sixers have been like, if you look at their draft record, drafting is the one area where it's like, hey, they're doing a, outside of Mark yep. Fultz. And as we mentioned, it's, that's a tough one. Outside of that, they're doing a pretty good job with the draft. And it's like, yeah. we don't value these anymore. And it's like, oh, meanwhile, yeah, like, we're running out, you know, well, they're having to give up assets for Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson, who are free agents at the end of the year. And this is a perpetual cycle. They keep giving up high second rounders for guys that are going to be there for four months. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and guys who aren't that good. Like, would you rather have Derek White than Glenn Robinson? Of course you would. Every team would. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the level of ineptitude is incredible to me. And I'm glad that you brought up the draft because I actually think that they've done fine in the draft. Like, they've done a pretty good job of evaluating players. It's been, like, one of the few saving graces that has allowed them to be able to, like, continue to trade these picks for second rounders, right? Like, whenever they do well in the draft, it gives them more assets to trade out, right? Like, Landry Shamit becomes Tobias Harris along with a lot of other things with Landry Shamit. Because Landry Shamit was really good that year. Like, he was, he's very clearly, like, a good rotation-level NBA player. Jeremy Grant is even, like, a good example of hitting on a, uh, a second-round pick, right? Yeah. Previous front office, but um, sure. a lot of the guys, there's still some carry over there, but yeah. Yep. Shake Milton. Matisse Thibel, like, I have questions, but he looks fine, right? Shake was 54th pick in the draft. He looked like he has a role. I don't think it's the role that he's playing right now. I think he made a lot more sense next to Ben Simmons when he was playing sort of like a combo, you know, one, two, that you could share responsibilities with Simmons. But he, I mean, look, that that dude can shoot at an NBA level. No doubt. Yeah, I I don't really have many doubts. I had Shake as a first rounder, and I love the fact that they took him. What, he 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 got hurt there at MSU, and then he had just one of the worst performances at the combine that you will... You will see. And I think a lot of people just worried like, hey, I don't I don't think he can do it against NBA size. Yeah. The question there was athleticism. Is he athletic enough to play at the NBA level? And the other part of it was that people thought of him as a lead guard because he played lead guard at SMU and he was never a lead guard. He's six, six with a seven foot wingspan. Like you can put that guy at the wing and be fine. Anyway, I guess after complaining about Pesetchniks for so long, I guess we have to balance that out with the one sort of um, optimistic part of the Sixers, and that is Shake Milton. And the fact that that is what we were talking about to balance out all of the mistakes shows why they're at where they're at. All right, I like last... Shake because he doesn't, he doesn't balance out right. Al and Tobias and Markel and all that. Yeah. The last thing we should talk about here before I let you go. Where, where do they go from here? Well, I mean, so uh, again, we're recording this before any news comes out. I We're think assuming Brett front... Brown is fired. So the, if he's not, I will. I, I mean, look, I don't. I think this is like I said. I think this is more. I don't think. I don't think Brett had a particularly good year. In fact, I think he had a, a, a bad year. 
uh, below average year for sure. But I think the problems preventing the Sixers from getting to a, a, a NBA title rest largely 80%. We'll go 70% front office, 15% Brett, 15% players. Um, but I think I think the front office is, is by and large why they are where they are. But I, still, I would be stunned if, I mean, shit runs downhill. I don't have to bleep that out, but... Um, no, 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 we're good. Okay, we, good. Don't, we, um, we don't bleep curses here. I just, I, I, look, I don't, I don't want to cause extra work for you, that's all. Uh, shit <laughs> runs downhill. Uh, this was a very disappointing um, season for the Sixers, and he is the first one on the chopping block. And look, I, I don't even think there's, like, you know, the Sixers are a very weird science experiment where you have a post-up big in a league that just doesn't post up and then a non-shooting point guard in a league that wants their point guards pulling up from 30 feet so you start off with this really unorthodox base now you have to figure out how to make that work and to do that first of all you've got to surround them with you know just maniacal attention to detail on all the pieces outside of them on the court and as we just covered here in the first 40 minutes of the podcast, they did not do that. But also you need to get through to them. You know, I think both of them need to sort of step up as vocal leaders in the clubhouse. I think you need to get them where they're, com- they're comfortable going outside of their comfort zone, specifically with Simmons and the shot. And you need to find a way to make that post offense, which is really tough to do in today's NBA, work when you don't really have that high level perimeter creator to overcome that, or to help him out with that. That hasn't, none of those three things have necessarily happened. I don't know how much of that is Brett Brown's fault, how much of that is the player's fault, but it's reasonable to say, look, let's get another voice in, because Brett Brown has been the only coach they've had in the NBA. Let's get another voice in, see if maybe he can motivate him, see if he can change the accountability of the locker room, see if he can scheme around their deficiencies better than Brett did. I think that's perfectly reasonable. But I think there's, you know, I would be right now very surprised if they'd made a change in the front office. And I think then we're shuffling chairs rather than fixing the core problems. You know, I think the decisions that were made here over the last four years have not been good enough. They've put them behind the eight ball in terms of getting to that championship level, and it's going to be tough. Now, what does that, what does that mean? First of all, I think Al Horford has to go. It just doesn't work with him next to Simmons and Embiid, paying him too much money. Uh, like I said, that luxury tax I think is going to get in the way of making – Decisions with the mid-level or maybe even draft picks because of how high that tax bill is. Find someone, whether that's, you know, Buddy Heald is going to be the one that everyone's going to talk about. Just find a, a piece that fits better. They have to do that. I would really look hard into moving Tobias Harris. I just don't think he's good enough to eat up all of that cap space, to limit their flexibility. And I mean, quite frankly, I think you need... a a talent that fits better. Like, I think you need a, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Cause it's not like you're getting, you're getting talent back for Tobias. Like you're, you're taking another bad contract. I don't, I don't truthfully, I don't know the answer to all these questions because it is, they have, like I said, they've put themselves behind the eight ball so much that there are so few avenues out. The only real obvious one is, is, is trading Al outside of that and, and, and hiring a new coach. Um, you know, I think they're going to make another run at Jay Wright because, they do that every time they have a, a coaching um, spot. I don't know why. I mean, I know why. I think he wants to coach. Like, the allure of coaching at the highest level for his hometown team is strong. I think Villanova is the only team he would 
or Villanova. I think the Sixers is the only team he would really consider that for. But if I were Jay Wright and I had that kind of infinite job security that he has in Nova, I wouldn't even consider it, quite frankly. Can, um, can but I, I make I, I a, get... in another case opposite that? Sure. What is college basketball right now? Uh, well, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, it's up in the air because of COVID. Right. I, I've like, I, I've talked to a lot of coaches on the college level now and like there's real concern about what college sure. basketball looks sure. like when For it comes sure. back. So like, that'd be the only case. I don't think he's going to take it. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I would be stunned if he took the Sixers I, job, but I'm just saying like if, if there was ever going to be a time where everything, like literally everything that has to align is aligning, yeah. it would be this time. Um, and look, it, it's not like a Sixers talent fits Jay Wright's system anyway. Jay Wright, who's as, as NBA of a college coach as maybe there is. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like I, I, Ty Lue, I think, is, is going to end up being a name. Um, I don't know. I don't know where they go. It's a, I think it's I saw a, Dave Yeager a, out there yeah, from Shams. Sure. I, I mean, that would be interesting. First of all, I, I respect the heck out of him as a coach. How that would work in a locker room with, you know, two, like if you want to go from one extreme and Brett, who's a player's coach and with the good and bad connotations that come with that, like I don't think he really wanted to ruffle feathers in the locker room too much. If you want to go to the opposite of the spectrum, see how that, how Embiid and Simmons respond to that. It'll be interesting. I think I'll, I'll probably have some stuff to write about. And maybe they respond to that well. I truthfully don't know. Um, but I respect him as a coach. Um, and, and like I said, I think, I think Ty Lue's a name we're going to hear too, but we'll see. I guess it's, Ime Yudoka as well. Sure. Sure. And I mean, I, th- I, I think he was, you know, he was very well respected in San Antonio. Sixers defense did not perform up to expectations. I think that would probably be a hard sell for a lot of Sixers fans. But like I said, he had that kind of um, reputation about him before he came here. So he's certainly up there too. I think the Buddy Heald deal makes sense. Um, I mean, they, they want to get rid of him too. So Right. Uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense. The Sixers do have quite a few picks in this draft. I would imagine that the Sixers will have to attach draft picks to Al Horford to get Buddy Hill. What do they have, like four second-round picks? Uh, they have four, I believe, yeah. I believe yeah, and they just got the 21st that's... pick. They had a, a top 20, or uh, OKC had a top 20 protected first-round pick that landed 21, so they get that too. Uh, 58, 49, 34, and 36. If they sell any of these picks to try and pay Brett Brown, the <laughs> league should step in just like it did when they stepped in to remove Sam Hinkie. Uh, it was, you know, two years ago, two years in a month, almost to the day, I was at a press conference in a small basement room in, I forget which, in, in, in the whole complex there at UNLV during the summer league yep. talking to Josh Richardson, who's giving, or not Josh, <laughs> Josh Harris, who is giving a press conference about the Sixers GM search, calling it the, you know, I think the way they phrased it at the time was it is the most um, attractive general manager opening in recent history, which I believe was right at the uh, time, by the way. Sure. I mean, they, 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 they were quote unquote star hunting. Like they had max cap space. Uh, and two stars had just come off a 50-plus win season, went yep. to the second round. A whole lot going for him. And they ended up with Elton Brand, who had been in the uh, front office for 
what about a year at that point uh and didn't even really try to make a a, a gm search so yeah hopefully and they they like, take this one a little more seriously this time and like the structure. oh and by, by the way where, where i was getting that when i started this whole thing and he called the referred to the process as a science experiment real dismissively too as a science experiment well, that science experiment is the only reason you are relevant right now. You are still relevant, even though we just went through all of the mistakes made here in the last four years. And maybe panicking to league pressure was might have been a misstep. I don't know. Getting Buddy healed, I think, is a real antidote for this team. Like, I, I think that he'd be great there. I think he'd be absolutely successful there. Tobias Harris, I do think that they could get off of that deal. I don't know what for. Yeah, they would have to attach picks to it, but I think that they the could get is, off of that in, deal. Unless you're trading like Al for literally no money, it's not like you're getting under the salary cap anyway. Um, you're just clearing space under the luxury tax, so you're not as scared away from spending money, so you don't get in the restrictions of the apron. Like there are reasons to do it, but. It's not like, I don't know. If they make these draft picks and spend them on anything other than wings and guards, <laughs> it will have been a dramatic misstep. Maybe if you could use one on a big. If they can't dribble, yes, because you need to, re you need to not spend $109 million on a backup center. Correct. If you can't dribble, you can't play for the Sixers. It's a new rule going forward. Xavier Tillman can dribble. Take Xavier Tillman at 36. He's there. <laughs> For the love of God. Um, just straight up, they need shooters. They need guards. If I was them, I would be setting three guards right around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Yeah. It's not Honestly, hard. that's the way that's the way I thought. Like when when the Sixers drafted Ben Simmons, I'm like, great. He can defend the power forward spot, he can switch onto anything, he can rebound, push, and transition. Not necessarily that he has to defend the power forward spot, but he can. So now you can go out and maximize on the amount of skill that's required in the NBA to put around him. It's real easy, relatively speaking, to get guys who can shoot from 25 feet, who can shoot off of pick and roll. It's a little tougher when those guys also have to be able to be 6'5 and defend multiple positions and have point guard skills and instinct. Well, you don't have to worry about that because you have the most versatile defender in the NBA who also, by the way, and, and I think this is why we get lost in the Ben Simmons conversation. Well, he should be that guy creating from the perimeter and scoring. Otherwise, what's his use? His use is as the most versatile defender in the NBA who can pass like a point guard and might be the fastest player in transition. That opens up the rest of your team to yeah. go out and selectively pursue guys who fit, who have that kind of scoring off of, like I said, off of from, from the perimeter, off of screens, and they just ignored it. And it's really weird. Stop well, not, not only that, you have the most versatile defender in the league. You have one of the five best transition players in the league. And as we saw through stretches throughout the year, maybe the best weapon at beating four on threes out of short rolls in the league. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 and look, we made a big deal about Shake Milton being in the starting lineup. I don't know if that's Shake's future. Maybe he's a six-man. I don't know. A bench player. Who? We'll see. We need we need a larger sample. But that archetype, like the fact that 
the Sixers unlocked Ben Simmons as a short role man with Howell Neto and Shake Milton. Shows that this should not be as difficult as the Sixers made it out to be. Yep. You have three picks in a draft that is loaded with guards and perimeter players. Of which Malachi Flynn, Grant Riller, Tyrell Terry, Cassius Winston, oh, Devon Dotson, Nico Mannion, Skylar Mays, Jemias Ramsey, Sam Merrill. Uh, who else? Who else do we have here? Feels like there are probably more. Peyton Pritchard's another one. That's 11. Elijah Hughes is a wing. That's 12. You could even take Robert Woodard. You could take Desmond Bain. Uh, that's like 13, 14 guys. That's your draft board. Take those guys. Rate them and take them. Yep. And from there, we'll see where it goes. Maybe you can use one of the, one or two of those picks to acquire Buddy Heald because you're going to have to attach something to Al Horford to get him. Right? And maybe they don't want Al Horford. Like, maybe they just decide uh, we're good with Rashawn they did. They did last summer. They I did don't know if they still summer. do. I don't right. know if they still do, but they did last summer. Right. But we'll see. Instead, instead, I'm sure in a couple of months we'll be talking about the Sixers next six foot eight power forward. So. I'm going to be very sad if that happens. Derek, <laughs> tell the people uh, what you've got coming up as you diagnose. This. I mean, we're talking about GMs and coaches and everything that went wrong. Oh boy. Uh, in a happier note, I'm going to talk to Tim Cato about the incredible uh, Los Angeles Clippers and. Dallas Mavericks series, including just Luka Doncic taking the leap in front of our eyes. But first, here's a message from sponsor, uh, and we'll be back in about a minute and a half. All right, we're back here with the legend, the absolute god of Dallas Mavericks basketball. It's Tim Cato. Tim, how you doing, man? I feel like that introduction is is would be better for Luka Doncic himself, um, but uh, I'll take it. I'll take well, it. I'm doing great. To me, it goes Tim Cato, Dirk Nowitzki, Luka Doncic. That's that's the that's the ranking in the hierarchy. Mark Cuban can be fourth, I guess. Like that's the hierarchy yeah, of Dallas basketball. I just want to be over Cubes. That's 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 the one. <laughs> like I don't. I'm not worthy of being being ranked ahead of Dirk. Um, and after that, I think I think before last night, before Luca hits a shot, you know, maybe I was I just edged out, you know, a little bit ahead of him. But I think he he lapped me there. But uh, I'll take I'll take I'll take a third place finish. So yeah, let's let's talk about that Luca game last night. Forty three points, seventeen rebounds, thirteen assists. I don't know if you know this, Tim, but no one's ever done that in a playoff game before. <laughs> uh, and then on top of it, he hits the game winner, which. You know, we can talk about the Clippers' defense and what they were doing and why they were switching all actions and getting Reggie Jackson onto Luka, but that feels like taking away from the greatness that was Luka Doncic in that game because whatever the Clippers put in front of him, it did not matter. He was dominant. He was That was the most dominant playoff performance I've seen since, like, prime LeBron. I feel like, like very prime LeBron offensively. Yeah. I mean, it was legendary. Like that is not a hyperbole word in this instance that, that is like, it, it is, you know, something we have virtually never seen before. The other stat that's blowing my mind um, is that no, no NBA player in the postseason has scored 40 points and hit a lose or uh, go home, or I guess win, win or go home 
uh, buzzer beater. Um, uh, the other one was was Michael Jordan with yeah. with the shot in 1989, and and Luke is the only other one to to fit that set of cir- circumstances. And I know that you know sometimes we get a little bit crazy with you know the the uh, the modifiers and being like no player has ever done this on a Tuesday you know while wearing Adidas sneakers. But like this one is no player has ever hit a shot while also being you know dropping 40 points. You know it, th- that's legendary stuff. Like that is. Like that is, you know, it brings the storyline to another level of just what he did and how people will remember this and talk about this and, you know, rewatch the YouTube video of it and all of these things. Just, just, just sensational. No, I mean, it's absolutely legendary. You 100% hit the nail on the head. Uh, this was the first great, memorable Luka Doncic game that everyone is going to return to. Uh, from the time that he's retired, from the time that he is uh, after he wins a title at some point, which I guess we'll see if that happens. But uh, it feels like he is so great that a title is going to happen at some point, uh, whether it be this year or not. Uh, I, I probably would not say it's going to be this year, but <laughs> it is remarkable. And we haven't even gotten to the point yet where he did this without Dallas's other all-star. Like right. he did this without Kristaps Porzingis, who on his own was kind of breaking what the Clippers were doing defensively because they love that drop covered scheme. And it's just really hard to deal with a Luca Porzingis pick and roll if you're going to play drop all the time because Porzingis is so great at picking and popping. And then, frankly, Luca is just beating Zubats off the bounce whenever he wants. Like, it just does not matter. He he is able to get by that dude whenever he wants. Yeah, I, I mean, for the series to be 2-2 after Game 4 was not a scenario that seemed, you know, totally absurd to me. But, you know, for the series to be 2-2 when in Game 1, KP is ejected, and Game 2, Luka has foul trouble the entire fourth quarter, in Game 3, Luka has his ankle injury, in Game 4, Porzingis doesn't play... That is unbelievable to me. That is not a scenario I've ever had. Um, you know you that have, that. Yeah, if you would have told me that, I would have said that this is a sweep. Right, right. Yeah, same. You know, like this team lost badly to the Clippers three times in the regular season, and as much as we said rightly so that that you know the the Mavericks were you know closer to a three seed than a seven seed. You know, they were they were clearly a team that, you know, had underperformed based off their talent, their metrics, you know, their, you know, net rating was sixth in the league, all that stuff. You know, this still was the Clippers who I said for months, you know, even before the season was suspended, that uh, that that it's the worst possible matchup. It's a one matchup that can really work Luca and bother him yep. and, and has the defenders to do so. And then, you know then the Clippers have decided for the most part not to use those defenders on Luka. So that's, that's a, that sure is an interesting decision on their part, but, but still just in general, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's shocking. It's, it's not what I would have expected. Um, you know, I, I was ready to say the Mavericks will beat Denver in the first round if that ends up being the matchup, yep. but the Clippers I thought were just the perfect matchup, you know, to, to really limit what made Dallas so good. And now they're breaking even even the Clippers defense and and it's it's uh it's it's sensational. 
Yeah, I think that losing Patrick Beverly has been an enormous problem for the Clippers because that does not allow them to switch as much as they want and have success with it. I think that not having Beverly is a big reason why they played drop basically throughout the first three quarters of that game. And I think that not having Beverly is why Luca had as much success late in that game dealing with Reggie Jackson instead of Patrick Beverly. That's not to, again, take away from Luca's greatness, but not having Beverly really does limit what the Clippers can do because given how much they play Montrez Harrell, given how much they play uh, Lou Williams, who they had to have in yesterday, frankly, they just had to have Lou Williams on the court as much as possible because he was keeping their offense afloat along with Kawhi Leonard in the absence of uh, Paul George peeing his pants on the court, basically, it seemed like. Like, Yeah. I mean, what is, (laughs) what is going on there? I have no idea, but you basically have to have Reggie Jackson, Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, you know, two of those three guys are almost always going to be on the court. Landry Shamit's another one that Luca can take advantage of. And it's a little bit weird to me as well that they haven't really tried Rodney Magruder at all. Uh, They have not really made the effort to go to him. I think he's played like one minute in this series, and I can't even remember what the minute was. But Magruder is like kind of a battler on defense, and I think that their offense just runs so well against this Dallas defense that I'd almost be willing to play four on five with Magruder on the court, if you think it's even that bad. Like Magruder, you know, is over the previous two years, not this year, been something in the ballpark of a 35% three-point shooter, right? Like you can hope that he can get there uh, and at least be a spacing option for Kawhi and Lou Williams on these drives, right? But it's weird to me that Doc hasn't gone down that road in Patrick Beverly's absence because they need one more good perimeter defender, so that Luca can't take ridiculous advantage of what's out there on the Clippers' behalf. Yeah, I don't, I don't have strong Magruder takes. I think that does make sense to me. What, what you said, but, but just even, even riffing off, off Beverly's absence, uh, even more. You know, they, it, it's weird. It's weird to look at this team and realize they just don't have, you know, guards that can dribble and create shots. You know, outside of Lou Will and 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 uh beverly and and that's why they've they've obviously had to use reggie jackson as as much as as much as they have but um you know it's well, the, that's that's the, the thing is i don't even know that it's they don't have perimeter players that can create shots they do they for, others, for others for others maybe specifically Leonard. right right that's exactly where i was going to go is they don't have guys that whose sole purpose is ball movement right they have a right. lot of scorers exactly and to be honest like I kind of thought that that would play up in the playoffs a little bit. Like I thought that having guys who can go get a bucket when games tighten up against one-on-one coverages, uh, to me, that is a lot of what the playoffs have become. And I still think they're going to be fine at the end of the day. Like I'm not saying I wouldn't pick the Clippers to win two of these last three games, but 
it is interesting how that lack of ball movement, especially without Beverly, who is a very good three-point shooter and is someone who can be a bit more unselfish within the uh, scheme of that offense, it has been slightly exposed a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah, I think game two is when it looked really bad, when, when it just, like, it looked like the Clippers' offense wasn't connecting. Like, it, it just, the 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 necessary linking piece, which Beverly often serves as, you yep. know, wasn't there. And then and then it's either Lou Will, you know, creating and, and getting getting shots for, for people, or, you know, it's, you know, that's that's it. You know, what what is well, Reggie doing? Yeah, know, and Lou Will. Getting roasted by Luca. Yeah, he is. I mean, but specifically, Lou Will often creates a lot of shots for Harrell in these yeah. second unit matchups, and Harrell just isn't right yet. Like, it seems like he's not uh, fully back to the level that we saw in the regular season, which again hinders their offense because Harrell was such an important cog within their second unit offense, and frankly, oftentimes within their closing lineups. Right, 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 right. So I'm fascinated in that part of it. And I wanted to run an idea with you moving back to Dallas. Uh, One thing that I've talked to a lot of NBA executives about is this idea that putting NBA players in Orlando without a crowd with these like incredible shooting backdrops has basically made shooting uh, and offense like shooting fish in a barrel, right? These teams are so good and these players are so talented as shooters that without the distractions that typically come from playing in an arena, on the road, in, you know, tight ball games where the crowd kicks up and where the backdrop is often a crowd, right? That... NBA players are so good that whenever you put them in these situations, they're going to succeed almost always if they're a great offensive player. The two teams yeah. that I feel like have been helped most by that are Dallas and Houston. And both of those teams have looked great so far in comparison to what we expected from them in the playoffs. Right, right. I mean, the, these are those were the two teams that shot the most threes in the regular season. You know, they're they're both schematically based around you know open open threes. And and yeah, you're right. You know, it just it does feel like, you know, I, I think I think as we, you know, in in the in the long long months that that preceded the bubble, and as we started talking about what it was going to be like, um, I remember some people having concerns about shooting and, and wondering if it would look bad. You know, if if like the the games would just look bad if people would be off. My only concern when it came to shooting was whether, you know, conditioning would be a little bit worse and thus people would right. lose their legs quicker. But it always made sense to me that, you know, sure, a lot of players didn't shoot for a month. That comes back. They, they had they, that, that, that stuff comes back, you know, especially for good shooters. Like, you know, they're not, they're not losing their touch out of, out of, out of nowhere. And they, they had a long time to build back up. You know, they ended up having, you know, a three-month ramp-up period, uh, you know, starting, starting yes, with individual workouts, um, you know, pretty limited stuff. But, but you know, the, the, between the bubble and all this, you know, the, I think shooters are certainly at an all-time advantage. And uh, I, I, think, I, think, I think you're definitely right about that. So, you know, as, as, you, as, you know, as, as we watch in game four, the, the Mavericks just, you know, all their role players are, are putting in shots and uh, putting in two-pointers, too. The Mavericks, I, I, I 
wish I had the stats, but they must be shooting, you know, uh, 50% on contested twos right now. And, and just all, all over the court, it feels like, you know, these, these, the role players that are, that are checking. I mean, even Luca, Luca's hitting threes now, uh, fairly, fairly consistently. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good theory. It, It definitely, it definitely affects Dallas as, as it would affect any three point shooting team. Um, you know, that's, that's as focused on, on that, um, they're, they're actually not shooting the most threes in the playoffs, but I don't know if you have seeding overall stats. Dallas has only done about 30, only shot 38 threes through the first four games, um, an average of 38 threes. But, but, you know, I think the Clippers have also sold out at moments to, to really stay home on shooters. Uh, we definitely saw that in game three and, uh, you know, in game four, that, that, Felt like it slipped a little bit as as you know there there was more help there was you know more more drop coverage early on as you mentioned. Yeah, so the overall effective field goal percentages in the playoffs this year, number one is Utah, which is playing against the worst defense I think I've ever seen in a playoff setting in Denver. That team is so fucking bad on defense that it's unbelievable. Like every single I I don't think I've ever seen a coach just straight up attack a player every single time down the floor. Uh, quite like that wasn't a center, let's say, because, you know, Memphis just straight up attacked Hassan Whiteside like this in that playing game. But the way Quinn Snyder is attacking Michael Porter Jr. every time he's on the court is crazy. Like he is just making Michael Porter have to defend every single action that they put him through and he can't do it. Like he's just not there yet. And it's really, really smart on behalf of uh, Quinn Snyder. And it's been a big part of why Denver has struggled. And I think that there's probably something else going on with Denver, even beyond the injuries, because the egg that they laid in game three was just abominable. Um, Number two is Toronto, who played Brooklyn, who's a disaster defense and was basically fielding a G League team. Uh, Number three is Milwaukee, who's without uh, Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon and uh, Orlando's without Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon and, you know, they're putting up pretty ridiculous offensive numbers. And then number four is Dallas, who is playing a good defense in the Los Angeles Clippers. To me, this is by far the most impressive offensive performance of the playoffs so far, what we've seen from Dallas. And I guess that the question that I'm leading to here is how do we think that this will sustain over the course of these final three games and give Dallas a chance to actually win this series? If if Luca and Porzingis are healthy, then yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, as 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 we all know, you know, historically great offense. This this you know, Dallas was this good in the regular season. You know, they are they are this good. They are redefining what spacing means in a, in a lot of ways by having a center that shoots from thirty feet. Um, you know, they they are, and, and then you pair that with with a a LeBron James. You know, the the most LeBron James like player in the league. You know that that. LeBron James has never played in a in a system with this with spacing this good, yeah. um, and and that's that's uh yeah I mean it's 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 what leads to the um, just sensational uh, offensive shot making that this team has. I mean just look at Trey Burke like Trey Burke is not this good, but it makes sense that you put a player who can you know who has a he has a quick twitch first step and can beat a guy. You put him in a perfectly spaced offense and more often than not he's just blowing by whatever you know third defender is on him he even roasted Kawhi Leonard last night somehow um in in game four 
but but you know you, he he blows by his defender and there's nobody at the rim to to stop him like it, it makes perfect sense that a player like that is just thriving so you know i think porzingis health is is you know the the number one key going forwards i i assume that with as good as luka looked in game four despite the ankle that he'll be okay um certainly if he tweaks it again that that that's an issue if porzingis can't go in game five that that's a problem um yeah. And if I was to interpret Carlisle's comments after game four um, about Porzingis's health going forwards, I would say glass half empty. Um, certainly it wasn't a leaning statement either one way or the other, but it was, you know, it felt more couched with, well, we're hoping he will be able to play um, as if the assumption was, as of right now, we're not play- you know, we're, we're not expecting it. It was, it was more one of those situations. Um, but at the same time, I think it's very possible that, that he's out there. And if they've got, if they've got Luka and KP, then, you know, I, I don't know with, with what have happened in the first four games and how much the Clippers just have struggled to adjust. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't know if there's adjustment. I don't know if Rodney McGruner alone, you know, is, is going to fix this. Right. I, I do think Beverly coming back would, would make a difference. But, you know, they, they could have won, probably possibly should have won game one, you know, before that ridiculous Porzingis ejection. And and so and that was with with Beverly on the court. So, yeah, yeah, I I think I think the offense will will keep going. And and you know if I, I think more likely in a in a situation where where the Mavericks lose, you know their offense keeps humming, but the defense starts to falter a little bit, and Paul George gets his shot back, and that's how the Clippers kind of push through in advance, um, along with Kawhi just knowing how to win in tight series. But you know it's uh it's it. Both teams could like the Mavericks have a legitimate chance, and that's not what I expected to say, you know, when when this series started. Yeah, if Porzingis doesn't get ejected in Game One, there's a very real possibility that we're staring at a three-one Mavericks lead, yeah. which is crazy. It's absolutely crazy to me, given what we saw in the regular season from these two teams, and given just what the matchups on paper dictate. But whenever you have Luka Doncic, it's it's real, man. <laughs> like it gets real in a hurry. Uh, I will say. You listen to like some of the comments coming out of the Clippers, like uh, our good colleague uh, Jovan Bua just tweeted out a quote from Jamichael Green saying that uh, we are casual right now. We have to get back to that gritty team. Once we get back to that gritty team, we're unstoppable. There is a chance that like they are just simply uh, they're not playing as hard as what they typically do. Like that, that very much could be a thing. This is supposed to be one of the best defensive teams in the league. They have two of the best defensive wings in the league. They have a good rim protector in Zubats, who is just getting annihilated by Doncic. They have Patrick Beverly, Rodney Magruder. They have real defenders that they can put on the court, at least. Uh, This is a little bit stunning to me, uh, to be honest. And, And, Maybe one thing that, you know, we're seeing across the league, uh, in my opinion, is that, you know, these playoffs are almost a rebuke of the drop coverage schemes that have become so popular because of Milwaukee over the course of the last few years. Uh, Dallas is just destroying the Clippers drop coverage. Um you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think like Houston is destroying what Oklahoma City does with Steven Adams. Uh, you know, the, the Lakers 
generally are getting good shots every time down against the um, the Trailblazers, but they're just struggling to make these shots because they don't necessarily have these elite level uh, shooters out there with them. So it's interesting to me that that seems to be a common theme to me, to me that these, uh, that these teams that have built defenses around drop coverage, once you get to the playoffs, it just becomes harder. Like it's really hard to be able to consistently stop these elite level pull-up shooters, especially in the bubble where shooting efficiency is just off the charts right now. Right, right, right. And then, you know, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with all that. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously for the Clippers, you know, they, they have also switched and, and that, that is, that has gone as, as, as we know. And it's so it's point. just, it's, yeah, I mean, the, I, I will that, say that's the thing when you're like, playing a historically good offense. Like, it's, you know, a lot of defensive schemes are going to fail against, against the Mavericks. It's absolutely true, but I will say this. Where the Clippers had their best success was, like, through against Luka from, like, the 10-minute mark of the fourth quarter when he came back in down to, like, the three-minute mark of the fourth right. quarter. And a lot of the time they were switching and blitzing and doing different stuff. Uh, to try and slow down Luca specifically. And once they did that, Dallas's offense, I mean, it was still a fine offense. Like it wasn't an elite level offense, but it was fine. And the Clippers came back into the game because they were able to get stops that way. And yeah. I wonder if that's what we start to see more of throughout the playoffs, even though they're not necessarily just going to flat switch uh, someone like Reggie Jackson onto Luca again. I wonder if we see more aggressive ball screen coverages. It's hard to do that because Luca is so good at finding the open man. And Dallas is really good at playing lineups that have multiple passers and ball handlers on the court that can actually make reads. Like, you know, we laugh at how, you know, shot happy Tim Hardaway Jr. is. Tim Hardaway, if he's screening for Luka Doncic or something, like if you run a one-two or whatever you want to call Luka, like a Luka shooting guard pick and roll, and then you short roll Tim Hardaway Jr. into the middle of the court because Doncic is getting blitzed by the two defenders, like Tim Hardaway Jr. is comfortable with the ball in his hands and can make a read based off of that. Like it's not like he's just going to go up and gun from there. Right, right, right. Um, another another wrinkle that the Clippers have had is, is, you know, down the stretch, they had basically stopped guarding Maxi Kleba. Um, yep. And if he doesn't start making shots, you know, he might get played out of certainly finishing games and, you know, he his minutes might just go down a lot. And, and whether, you know, I think he, he his eye test of how he's defended Kawhi Leonard hasn't been incredible. You know, certainly some good moments mixed by, you know, a lot of times Kawhi just getting to his spots, but the yep. numbers indicate he's done a really fantastic job, much better than Finney Smith. And just having, you know, I, I think there is value in, you know, just forcing a, you know, as good as Kawhi is as a mid-ranger, you would rather him taking contested mid-rangers than getting layups. And he is stronger than Finney Smith, Kawhi is. And so, you know, he can get to the rim and, and bully him around. And he can't really do that against a bigger player in Kleba who is, you know, He's a big man. He's 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 a center. Um, you know, he's a he's a four five, and he's he's a bigger player. And so, you know, if if that goes away, then then maybe we're looking at a fifty point Kawhi game. Um, you know, just just because you know, if if Maxi isn't hitting threes, and if he's totally, you know, if if he's getting the Tony Allen, you know, 
playoff treatment, you know, as, as the Warriors did, you know, famously back in 2016 or whenever that was, um, you know, that, that is going to make it harder to play him. So that, that's another wrinkle. That's another thing that, that could be, could be worth watching. Um, and then, yeah, uh, game three, game three, you know, the Clippers were, came out really good and in that one as well. And so the, the idea that it's not possible for them to, you know, figure out this defensive, uh, these, these defensive issues and, and still hurt Dallas is, you know, they're definitely capable that they, they clearly have, you know, superstar defenders, but, you know, so it'll, it'll just be interesting to see how, how much they're able to affect and, and how much they're able to recover, you know, the, they're also very good offense and, and, and all that. So it's uh it's not the series I expected. <laughs> that's, no, that's it's, for it's sure. not. That is for sure. Uh, I have pulled up the matchup numbers for Kawhi when he's on offense, according to NBA.com. And I will say the Finney Smith numbers are better uh, against Finney Smith. Uh, Kawhi has been defended for 15 minutes. Kleba has defended Kawhi for 21 minutes. Uh, Kleba is, is getting hit. Uh, he's got given up 57 points in those 21 minutes, eight assists, four turnovers and allowing Kawhi to shoot about 45% from the field and get to the line a bunch, particularly uh, Finney Smith has, allowed him to go six for 14 from the field. So he's actually doing a little bit better of denying Kawhi shooting opportunities. And uh, in those 15 minutes, Kawhi has only scored 15 points. So Finney Smith is, they've done a great job. I think that a big part of dealing with Kawhi is giving him different looks and Kleba Finney Smith, like Michael Kidd Gilchrist, I think has done a decent job on Kawhi uh, throughout uh, the seven minutes that he's played on him. Uh, the, the problem is when they get anyone else on Kawhi, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, yeah. If, Lu- if that's Luka gets on him, if THJ gets on him, like it's kind of game over, you know? Yeah. I I found it from our mutual friend, Jay Dubin, who, uh, who's, who had some second spectrum stuff that had um, Kawhi has held, uh, Kleber has, has held Kawhi to his third lowest effective field goal percentage um, among uh, players who have defended Kawhi at least 100 half-court possessions in a playoff series. Uh, mm-hmm. That was after Game 3, so I wonder if the tables did flip pretty heavily in Game 4. You know, Kawhi yeah. was good, and, and that's the thing. These these sample sizes are so small that they can flip in a, in a single game. Um, so, but but I, I will agree that the eye test is is that, you know, you know both 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 defender, defenders are going to shut down Kawhi, and, and probably no one is anyway. And, but, but, but yeah, as, as long as those two are defending him, you're not going to get, you know, you're not, you're not going to allow 60 on, from Kawhi. And that's, I think that's the key with him is that, you know, as long as he's just getting a steady 35, a drip, drip, drip of, of 35 a game, you can, you can survive that, especially with as much as we know about how Kawhi uh, acts, you know, within an offensive ecosystem where it's really, yeah. you know, the Kawhi shots and then the rest of it a lot of the times, maybe a little bit less so with, with, with the Clippers. He, he had some really good passes, and I want, he had a pass in overtime, I want to say. I mean, he passed out to the could have been game winner to Marcus Morris yep, um, and had a couple other good passes. But, um, but certainly Kawhi, to some degree, is a, is a steady fo- force, and, you know, you know he's going to be – going to score 30 to 40, you know, and he's going to be involved in a, a, f- a few more, you know, plays and passes and made shots. And, you know, it's, it's the rest of the offense that has more variability to it. 
Um, and, and that's what the Mavericks have, have done a good job limiting to, to an extent, you know, outside of Lou Will, who does this. We, we know has, has always done this. He's a, <laughs> he's a bucket getter. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I mean, Paul George making shots would, would, uh, certainly shift yeah. things a bit. And, uh, that's where I wanted to go next was Paul yeah. George. Uh, and this will be the last point here. Cause I, I think he's ultimately the swing piece here. Uh, If Paul George plays well, I think the Clippers will win. If Paul George does not play well, I think the Clippers are going to lose. So far, Dorian Finney-Smith, again, he's played 17 minutes on Paul George and has given up nine points, according to uh, NBA.com. And he's allowed him to shoot three for 14 from the field. And has not allowed any foul shots from Paul George either. So. If that continues and they can play Finney Smith on Paul George and Kleba on Kawhi and Kleba can do a reasonable job, like as long as Kawhi continues to shoot 45% from the field, Dallas is a real shot. If Paul George just goes and does what we know Paul George is capable of, at least on some level, uh, Paul George has been good as recently as this year and as recently as in the bubble to start the bubble. Like he was really good for the Clippers to start. This becomes a different series. If Paul George can be the secondary piece that the Clippers went out and spent buckets of assets to acquire. Uh, If he can be the guy that they went out and got in order to get Kawhi because Kawhi wanted him, the Clippers win the series. If he, does not do that, the Clippers are going to lose this series. I, I I hate putting it on one guy because defending Dallas is such a team game, right? Having to be so solid in defensive rotation, having to constantly deal with the threat that is Luka Doncic, having to constantly deal with the spacing threat that is Kristaps Porzingis, having to deal with all of the shooters, uh, having to deal with finding a way to get Lou Williams buckets and get him space. Like so much of this is a team game that it almost feels unfair to put this much on Paul George. But at the end of the day, this shit's on Paul George. Like he needs to make shots. This is the reason they went out and got him. And if he continues to be a disaster in the playoffs, I kind of think that it's curtains for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as, as good of a job as Finney Smith has, has been doing in, in Dallas in general, like it's also just, George can make these shots. He isn't, and and if he does, then you know it's it's uh it's it's definitely a different situation. I mean, it's it's it, yeah. I, I think I think it's fair. I agree. You know, I, I don't. I, it feels like a sports writer cliche to put it, it on one person, and I hate it. Hey, just how can you not? How can you not look at this one singular player who is you know supposed to be the third best player in this series? You know, that's what the Clippers certainly expected coming into it. And he's playing like the 15th best player in the series. Um, that might be generous. So, so yeah, no, I, I think, I think that is that, it, that, I think that's a reasonable X factor. We can, uh, we can lean into the cliches. It's a, it's a make or miss league, you know? And, uh, oh, I love it. Let's, we'll, we'll, we'll let, toss, let's yeah. dive deep. Let's dive all deep the cliches, into the cliches. All the cliches. But I think, it, I think, I think for, for George, it's fair. Yeah. I mean, Paul George in the playoffs right now is averaging 15.3 points while shooting 29% from the field. Goodness. Trey Burke is averaging 13.3 points in shooting 58% from the field. 
Like, if Trey Burke approximates what Paul George does, the Clippers are going to lose. Like, it's just, (laughs) that can't happen for the Clippers to be successful. They built this roster based around the idea that they have these two shot-making wings who are top 10 players in the NBA. Paul George might be losing, like, top 12, top 10 player status in the process of this series. By the way, Paul George, who finished third in MVP voting, if I remember correctly, last year. Like, that was, I know that the shoulder got hurt and he might be a different guy, but, like, Paul George was literally the third best player in the regular season uh, of the NBA last year, as voted by writers, we'll say. He probably wasn't the third best player in the league, but he was that valuable. And right now, he's been about as valuable to the Clippers as Trey Burke has been to Dallas. Yeah. Yep. It's not good enough. Wild. That was probably the least expected thing. And by the way, uh, I mentioned this with Bodner in the first part of this podcast. Uh, Trey Burke going for 25 yesterday, uh, the same day the Sixers get eliminated, is one of the funniest things I think I've seen in basketball in a while. Man, nothing like it. Nothing nothing like the NBA, man. It's it's, – I mean, we knew the bubble would be weird, but uh, it has been weird than some. It's amazing. It's absolutely my favorite thing in the world. Tim, uh, you wrote about Luca yesterday. Tell the people where they can find that. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people about your podcast. Just give it, give me everything you got, man. Everything, everything. Uh, we might be here a while. Nah, nah. I mean, you know, all, all the all the work is on The Athletic. I, I wrote about, you know, just, just wrote about the game, shared, shared some thoughts. Um, you know, I, in, in the past, you know, I have I actually went to Slovenia last year. So so if Luca is now just mesmerizing you and you want to know more about him, uh, go go. Uh, it's it's I think it's my it's my pinned tweet on Twitter. So I'm, I'm Tim underscore Cato there. Um, and then, yeah, more two stories coming tomorrow. Uh, one more one more about Luca and his performance in, in Slovenia and all that. Um, and then something more focused on the series itself with uh, with with Jovan, a, a dual series there. So. That is uh that is that is all the work and it's it's uh it's it's fun it's fun it's a uh, it's a fun t- it's a fun part of the job you know after after many months slogging through the the wilderness it's uh it's cool to have games to cover again. That has been Tim Cato. I'm Sam Vicini. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. We'll be back later this week with some draft coverage. I think I think we're gonna jump back into that with a uh, good friend of the program Matt Penny. But until next time. We'll talk soon. Bye.